Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This week's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, is about John Rawls, the man who reinvented modern political philosophy. David explores how he made old ideas fresh and asks why he had so much impact, but so little influence. The writer I'm talking about today, John Rawls, and his book A Theory of Justice, which was published in 1971, might seem like it doesn't really belong in this series of talks. I mentioned it in the very first one, on Rousseau, and said that Rawls was an example of that other kind of political thinker, political philosopher, who asks the what question, not the why or how question. Rawls's question is, what is justice? He wants to build that idea up. He wants to put it together. He wants to make it make sense. He's not one of the people who wants to strip it down, tear it down, pull it apart, expose it. Show us just how weird it is that we've come to think of this as justice or that as justice. He wants us in a calm, careful, rational way to pull our thoughts together and to build them up into a coherent picture of what should count as justice for us. He's often contrasted to Thomas Hobbes, Hobbes who thought the central question of politics is what is peace or what is order, safety, security. Rawls is not about that. Rawls is about fairness and justice. He wants to know what it would be to live not in a safe society, but in a fair society. And frankly, unless you're very lucky, there's nothing in Hobbes's argument that's going to guarantee you that kind of fairness. But what they have in common is that they are trying to pull it together, to hold it together, to hold their what answer together against the people who want to pull it apart, who want to strip off the mask and see what horrors lie underneath. Rawls is also often in current writing about politics and political theory, contrasted with Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the people I've talked about in this series, The contrast is sometimes phrased to use two slightly jargony words as Nietzsche's realism against Rawls's moralism, as it's called. And what that means is that Nietzsche is supposed to give us a kind of warts and all real world take on politics, the power, the cruelty, the desire of human beings to dominate each other and make central to politics the things that we might prefer to look away from. Whereas Rawls starts and ends with moral questions, and he wants to ground justice in the best of us, the best of ourselves. He wants to make politics better than it is. Nietzsche wants us to see politics for what it really is. And that moralism is sometimes, not always, it has many champions and many supporters, but it's sometimes derided as an ivory tower view, detached, remote, floating a little bit above the nasty, grubby business of human beings telling each other what to do, often under circumstances of cruelty. And Rawls has been derided as an ivory tower philosopher, as someone who was a little remote from real politics. He spent his professional life at Harvard, and his view is in some ways the view from his office at Harvard. And that view can look a little bit cut off, 
And that has, as an accusation, clung to rules a little, not with everyone, but a little. The idea that as seen from a comfortable office at Harvard University in the northeast of the United States, as a general theory of justice, this is a little bit floating above the nasty stuff. But as so often with these kinds of reputations, it's a caricature, but it's more than just a caricature. It's actually unfair. It's wrong. Rawls is not an ivory tower philosopher, and he's not detached from the real business of politics. He fought in the Second World War. He fought in the Pacific, a really grim war. He certainly knows about cruelty. He saw worse things than Nietzsche ever saw. And when he came back from the war, he asked what he thought was the fundamental question. And it wasn't, what is justice? He came to that. There's a more basic question, and it's a familiar one, and you definitely do not have to be an academic philosopher to think this question is worth asking. He came back from the war and he asked, what were we fighting for? What makes it worth trying to defend a way of life like that? If you are going to defend a way of life, a state, a way of organising politics like that, it had better be worth defending. And so he spent the next 20 plus years trying to work out what it would be to give an account of a society like the United States. It doesn't have to be the United States, but it is certainly grounded in a North American perspective. After all, that was the state on whose behalf he was fighting that terrible war. What it would be like to give an answer to the what is justice question that really was a defense of this way of organizing a society. And if this way of organizing society, how we do it, isn't good enough, what would make it better? What's worth fighting for? So he thought about that through the 1950s. He refined his answer through the 1960s, and he published it in 1971. When he was thinking about it in the 1950s, there's another caricature at work here, which is to be an American in the 1950s is to live in a very peaceful, relatively stable, consensual society, the society of Eisenhower's presidency and happy days, if anyone remembers that TV show. There's a kind of bland version of 1950s America, which makes it seem like as a place to work out a fundamental question like what is justice, the answer might be a little bland. But there was nothing bland about 1950s America. These are all prejudiced versions with hindsight. When I think about 1950s America, I often find myself thinking of the song by Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire, in which Billy Joel, who was born in the late 1940s, recounts, in a sense, what the world looked like in his childhood by just listing all the things that happened, a relentless, never-ending, cascading list of explosive events and ideas and cultural phenomena and political happenings and traumas through the 50s. And then what's so interesting about that song is as it gets closer to Billy Joel's adulthood and maturity, the events become more spaced out, more sparse. Less seems to be happening in the 70s and the 80s, not because less is happening, but in your formative years, what's happening around you is overwhelming. Chubby Checker, Psycho, Belgians in the Congo, all happening all the time, relentlessly and not just those things, over and over again. And philosophically, the 1950s were Rawls's formative time. I don't know what Rawls 
would have thought of that list, but it was all happening. And then, of course, in the 1960s, it all kicked off. I don't think anyone thinks of the 1960s as the bland decade. When Rawls was refining his political philosophy, he was doing it, yes, from Harvard, but Harvard is not cut off from planet Earth, against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, against the backdrop of the Vietnam War, and then the protests against the Vietnam War, civil disobedience, student unrest. And Rawls was at the heart of it. You couldn't be a political philosopher at Harvard. You could maybe try and be detached from it. But Rawls definitely didn't even try. He was fully engaged in political upheaval. And his political philosophy is not cut off from that upheaval. It is informed by it. Quite a lot of a theory of justice in the section which is about the application of the ideas is about civil disobedience and about what it is legitimate to fight for. That question, what should we fight for, is still at the heart of Rawls's book. And through the 60s and the 70s, other political movements are getting going, ecological politics, thinking about the obligations we owe to future generations, thinking through the 50s and the 60s and beyond about the terrible risks of nuclear war. This informs Rawls's book too. He is, compared to many contemporary political philosophers, particularly the more academic ones, the opposite of cut off. He's fully engaged. And A Theory of Justice is a fully engaged book. But it is true that another word to describe it is academic. So it is a work of academic political philosophy, which makes it different from most, in some ways, all of the books I've been talking about to this point. He is a professional philosopher. It's his job. And he's engaged with questions of political philosophy that are, to some extent at least, contained within a kind of academic speak, a way of talking about politics that doesn't easily translate into everyday language. He doesn't use a lot of jargon, though he uses a little bit of jargon. Some of his argument is quite technical, but it's not anything like technical in the way that much contemporary 21st century philosophy is. It's not really a branch of maths, that's for sure. He writes clearly. He can be a little long-winded. It's not the most exciting book in its prose style, though the ideas are exciting. And almost everyone who's ever read A Theory of Justice comes away with that sense that there is something really exciting going on here. But it is a book partly written for an academic audience, and it sets up its puzzle, its problem, in what we might call academic philosophical terms, certainly not absolutely everyday language. So the puzzle of the what is justice question for rules is to find an answer that escapes from the trap of being reduced to what can sometimes seem like the only two possible answers. Rawls came to feel that there was a false choice being offered, that you either had to be one thing or the other when thinking about justice, and neither thing was satisfactory. So one thing you could be when asking what it would be to live in a fair society, one that was organised according to principles that we could agree treated people as they should be treated, was utilitarianism. Utilitarianism, which goes back to Bentham, among others, the calculus of utility, or as it's sometimes framed, pleasure and pain, the utility calculation as to what's best for a society by calculating what leaves people better off in terms of their own happiness or pleasure or utility or well-being. And the problem with utilitarianism for rules, 
turns a little bit on the difference between asking the what is justice question and the what is injustice question. So Rawls is interested in what justice is. He wants to aim high. He doesn't just want to undo the injustice. He doesn't just want a means of spotting things that are clearly and obviously wrong and expose them. Slavery, cruelty, executing people for their sexual preferences. He wants to find a way of justifying and grounding a political society in rules and principles and institutions that are as good as they could be. He wants to aim, if not for perfection, for a kind of version of the best. And utilitarianism, certainly I think Benthamite utilitarianism, is excellent for answering the what is injustice question. It is the acid that burns through injustice. But there are problems, notorious problems, with the utilitarian calculus when it comes to answering the question, what's the best we could do? And the problem is that it treats human beings as simply part of the calculation. Or to use Rawls's language, it treats them as means and not ends. That is, we are all just units to be totted up. And if us, as an individual, if we happen to be one of the units that makes the calculation come out wrong, we might be dispensed with, we might be discarded, we might not count, we might be cancelled out. And there are lots of notorious distortions of, but also extensions of, utilitarian philosophy that seem to end up logically with intolerable conclusions, absurd, ridiculous, counterintuitive outcomes, that in order to maximise happiness, Maybe we should dispense with people who are unhappy. If you bring the calculation down, maybe it would be better if you didn't exist at all. In order to maximise happiness, maybe we should just give birth to more and more and more people. Even if they are unhappy, they will have little bits of happiness in them. And if you just toss it all up, if you can get to a bigger number, maybe you just need to increase the scale. These are absurd conclusions, that you get rid of the unhappy, that you just try and accumulate little bits of happiness. And the absurdity for rules comes from the fact that it doesn't take people seriously as individuals with their own lives and values and wishes and desires. It claims to. It claims to be valuing their pleasure. But because it's a calculation, it treats people as just cogs in the final outcome. So if utilitarianism produces answers that can be, in relation to justice, counterintuitive, the other problem is that that seems to push you in the direction of, as an alternative to utilitarianism, what Rawls calls intuitionism. So if we can't calculate the answer to what is justice, we have to fall back on what our gut tells us. It feels wrong. It looks wrong. It smells wrong. It just doesn't seem right. And here, utilitarianism can be useful. Certainly Bentham was good at this. The problem with intuitionism is that it's just prejudice. I mean, it just happens to be what you happen to think, what you happen to feel. It's too dependent on where people find themselves. It's too dependent on what people happen to think. It's not reliable. If you have to build a society on intuitions, in the end, you may end up building a society that is shot through with contingent prejudice. So is there something between or separate from 
utilitarianism and intuitionism. And Rawls thinks there is, and he thinks it's a tradition in political thought that writing in the 50s and 60s and 70s of the 20th century, he felt had been neglected, but it has had many manifestations over the previous centuries. He calls it the social contract tradition. It includes people like Rousseau, not the Rousseau of the discourse I talked about, but the Rousseau of the social contract. It includes at its fringes people like Hobbes, Hobbes trying to construct an answer to the question, what is the state, by asking what would people agree to? What could we sign up to? And that also, for rules, is the way of answering the question, what is justice? But the challenge is to find a way of treating people's views seriously as saying, this is what actual people would agree to. So this is not something imposed from the outside by the utilitarian calculating machine, but it's also not something that depends upon people signing up as seen from and through their intuitions and their prejudices. You need to find a way of treating people as people, as ends and not means but also finding the grounds for agreement. Because if you allow people to be their prejudicial selves, they won't agree on what is justice. Hobbes's answer, which is not Rawls's answer, is the thing that we can agree on is our mortality, our fear of death, and our desire to avoid it. That's the great equaliser. We're still people. It's still us. This is not a calculation. This is an agreement but we can reach the agreement because of the fears we share. But that, for rules, is not good enough. It does not ground fairness. As I said, if you get fairness out of that, you're very lucky. So rules needs to find a way to treat people as individuals in their own right, but not to allow their individuality to derail the agreement by bringing in too many prejudiced perspectives. And the way he does it is with something that he derived in a way from that social contract tradition, but it is his innovation, and certainly this is his phrase. He does it by introducing a veil into political thinking. So a lot of the thinkers I've been talking about in this series have been trying to take the veil off politics. That's what the exposing is all about. That's what utilitarian acid does. It burns through the gauze and the veil. Rules, in a very different kind of tradition, wants to impose a veil. He wants to create a kind of gauze or barrier that prevents people from seeing the world as they would see it if they were located exactly where they stand. And he calls it the veil of ignorance. So what he wants to do is make people blinder to something. Now, a political philosophy that was based on making people blinder to the reality of the world wouldn't be much of a philosophy. And Rawls does not want that. So this ignorance is not general ignorance. He doesn't want people to reach a contract on the basis of not knowing anything. He wants the people who, in his thought experiment, and it is a kind of thought experiment, as all social contract theories are a kind of thought experiment, he wants people to know enough about how the world works, about how societies work, about economics, about politics, about institutions, about the things that we do collectively to be able to reach a judgment on what would make a fair society. The thing that he wants people to be ignorant about is who they are, where they stand. The ignorance is knowledge of ourselves. Not the knowledge of what it is to be motivated as a human being, not the knowledge of what it is to have values as a human being, but the knowledge of where we happen to stand in a social hierarchy. 
So we can know under these conditions behind the veil of ignorance, the difference between being rich and being poor, being white and being black. We can know the difference between power structures. We can know how institutions try to mediate between different power structures. What we can't know if this is going to work is whether we are rich or poor, whether we are white or black. We can't know whether we are advantaged or disadvantaged. And then the question is, what would justice look like for people who know how societies work, but don't know where they are within them? Now, it does sound like a fairly artificial exercise, and Rawls is aware of that. He introduces another concept, too, that goes along with the veil of ignorance that he calls reflective equilibrium. So the veil comes down, we have a kind of brain wipe, and we have to reach judgments about justice from a position of ignorance about our own standing. And then the veil comes up, having reached those judgments, having come to an agreement about what a just society would look like, we then see what our society looks like, but also where we stand in it. There would be no point in coming up with a theory of justice that couldn't then withstand the knowledge of who we are. And we may need to adjust. That's why it's called reflective equilibrium. There's a back and forth. You lower the veil, you come up with your theory. You lift the veil, and you see if the theory has a chance of taking hold. And if it doesn't have a chance of taking hold, if it is, say, too remote, too ivory tower, too optimistic, too utopian, you have to drop the veil again because now you have some more knowledge about society. You have some more knowledge about the background conditions of justice, which is our society will not be able to live with that. And if you factor that knowledge in, you can make another adjustment to the principles of justice. You lift the veil again and you see if these principles will stick. And Rawls painstakingly does the dropping of the veil and the lifting of the veil. It's all a thought experiment, but still, these are two very different perspectives, knowing and not knowing who we are. And he argues that if you do that, you would come up with a pretty simple, pretty broad set of principles that count as justice for a society like his, late, mid to late 20th century America. So what are these principles? Well, there are three. They come in two parts. There's the first one and the second one. The first thing he thinks that people would agree on behind the veil of ignorance is that they want freedom. They want what he calls basic liberties. And they want to be pretty confident that whoever they are, they will have those liberties. They do not want to take a risk of coming back into a society and discovering, oh no, I'm a slave. And the risk of being a slave vastly outweighs the prospect of being a slave owner. And that's without even taking account of the fact that slavery corrupts and destroys everyone. But it goes further than that. He's trying to guard against the possibility, and he thinks people would want to guard against the possibility when they discover who they are, and maybe discover that they are seriously disadvantaged, that they will sell their freedom in order to get benefits. This is meant to guard against the risk of a kind of authoritarian, oppressive socialism, driven by an offer to the people who are oppressed, let's call them the proletariat, to give up their freedom for the sake of a different conception of justice, a more overtly egalitarian justice. Rawls prioritizes liberty. Rawls is a small L liberal. And he does it because he thinks that's what we would all agree from behind the veil of ignorance if we didn't know that we were the disadvantaged or the advantaged would want to guarantee our freedom. 
Another thing he thinks we would want to guarantee is that in this society, the opportunities that are available to stand out, the advantages that are there, and there will always be advantages. Some people will be better off. Some people will have better jobs. Some people will have better roles, better life chances. That these advantages, these opportunities are available to all in the sense that you can't be ruled out simply by who you happen to be. And this is there to guard against what he assumes would be everyone's fear of being on the wrong end of prejudice. So a society in which it was possible to become a doctor so long as you weren't Jewish, or a society in which it was possible to go to college so long as you weren't a woman, wouldn't stand behind the veil of ignorance, because people would be very conscious of the risk that they might be in that group that was discriminated against. The freedom principle is there to stop people selling their freedom. The discrimination principle is there to stop people from being discriminated against. And Rawls thinks, not for intuitionist reasons, but because it is what we would all agree to, that's justice, that's fairness. And then there is one more principle, and this is the one that tends to gather the most attention from people who read Rawls. It's called the difference principle. Sometimes it's called the maximin principle. It's actually, in its origin, the efficiency principle. It simply says that the way the society is organized should work to everyone's advantage. That if we didn't know who we were, we would want rules and principles and institutions to be organized in such a way that regardless of who we were, they work to our advantage as much as is possible. They can't make everyone happy. They can't make everyone lead the life that they want to lead. But insofar as it's possible, they treat us all as ends and not means. No one is sacrificed for someone else's happiness. No one is sacrificed for the aggregate or common good. But he thinks through the process of reflective equilibrium and a bit of back and forth, we would specify the rule more tightly than that. And we would say, actually, for a society to be fair, as well as having these basic liberties and this equality of opportunity, it also needs to be organized so that its rules work to the advantage of the least advantaged. Its priority should be making sure the worst off in a society, the poor, the disadvantaged, the unfortunate, the worst off are as well off as they can be. It does not prioritize the rich being richer. It prioritizes raising the poor to the highest level it's possible, consistent with those liberties and those equalities of opportunity. This is not an argument for communism. This is not an argument for redistributive Bolshevik socialism. It's a liberal argument for a redistributive state that organizes its rules and its principles, its background conditions, to focus on the worst off. Why does Rawls think that we would all agree, all of us, on that last principle? That's a harder question to answer. There may be reasons for doubting that we'd agree on the first two as well. But that's the one that's tended to garner people's attention. And Rawls has an answer, but it is quite a specific answer. It depends upon what he thinks human beings are like and how he thinks we organize our lives. So he says that his assumption is that we are rational that all of us have different things that we want from life, different values, different goals, different life plans. We all have a different thing that we think would allow us to say that was a good life. 
some of these things will overlap, some of them won't. Some of us might want to be poets, some of us might want to be doctors, some of us might want to be primarily finding our meaning in family life, some of us might want to travel, some of us might want to drift. But that we have a plan, we have an idea of what we want to do, and because we're rational, we recognise there is a relationship between means and ends, that if we are going to have a chance of fulfilling this life plan, we need some resources. We know enough about how societies work to know that if you are unlucky enough to be one of the very disadvantaged, one of the poorest, one of the people who were born into circumstances, which mean it is really hard to find a way up and out. If that's a risk, we would want to make sure that were we among that group, we were the focus of redistribution because we would all recognise that it's more important for the chance of fulfilling any life plan, any life plan, to have some resources than the difference between having some resources and having a lot. The big difference is between almost none and some. Extreme poverty kills all life plans because no one has the time or the space or the resource to plan. Life is a day-to-day struggle. So if there's a risk that we could be one of the people for whom life is a day-to-day struggle, we would know that to have any chance of a fulfilling life, we would need to be the priority. But if we're one of the others in the middling group, in the upper group, the well-off, the very well-off, the super well-off, it doesn't make that much difference to our chances of achieving our life plan to be richer and richer and richer. This is partly a kind of law of diminishing returns that we all ought to be able to understand, that just accumulating more and more wealth, resource, advantage, doesn't advantage us in our ability to lead a good life. But accumulating some could make all the difference. That's why we agree on the maximin principle. Maximin means maximize the minimum. And we do it because we know the worst thing that could happen, the one thing that we all would want to guard against, if we didn't know who we were, was the risk of belonging to the group who have the least. There have been all sorts of criticisms levelled against this argument. So one is that it is psychologically implausible, that actually that is not the thing that we would all agree on. People really differ in their risk profile. So that is a risk-averse strategy, if it is a strategy for justice, guarding against, ensuring against the possibility that we come out on the bottom. And lots of people from behind the veil of ignorance, so the argument goes, might want to take their chances. They might think they would risk being at the bottom for a chance of being at the top, because they might think actually there's a reasonable possibility that their definition of a good life is being better off than almost everybody. And some human beings do seem to think that there is a huge difference between being rich and being very, very rich. As it's sometimes said, what's the difference between having $100 million and $200 million, to which the person with $100 million answers, another $100 million, thank you very much. But it doesn't seem plausible, though some people might think that, that enough people would think that to derail the process. And I think we all know, or we think we know until we get into that position, that accumulating more and more wealth isn't necessarily the way to lead a good life. Another criticism that's made against this is that it's a bit conventionally, blandly, redistributive, social democratic, a word that might be used or used to be used back in the day where this meant something, a bit Swedish, Swedish in the sense of Scandinavian, redistributive, welfarist, comfy, making sure no one falls beneath a certain threshold, politics. 
boring politics. Predictable, the kind of thing someone sitting in Harvard would think was a just society. A little bit left-wing, not radically left-wing, not revolutionary by any means. Rawls is definitely not a revolutionary political thinker. He is no Rosa Luxemburg. And so the criticism comes, well, all that work just to come up with a kind of soft leftish social democratic program. Where's the excitement in that? But I think Rawls can say, and the Rawlsians can say, well, the excitement in that is the United States is not Sweden. It's never been Sweden. So if this is a bit Swedish in an American context, this still has bite. And after all, the United States of America has never been that kind of society. There have been periodic moments, including points in the 1960s, where it seemed as though American politics would gear itself, for instance, under Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program, towards the predicament of the least advantage. But those moments are rare. They are vanishing. They are fleeting. They don't last in American politics. To say, as Rawls does, that they shouldn't just last, they should be the anchor, is not bland. It is genuinely political. And there's another criticism, a more philosophical criticism of Rawls's argument, which is that it is too rationalistic, that it constructs a version of what it means to lead a good life in too narrowly means-ends terms. The idea that what we do is maybe, well, and young, we work out what it is that would make our lives meaningful, poetry or art or family or business, success, whatever it is. And then we work out the means to achieve it. And then we pursue that goal systematically. And the argument is that there's much more going on than just that, that a good life can't be reduced to a means ends calculation about how we get to where we want to be, that many people don't know where they want to be. And many people's understanding of what a good life is, is not about their own life goals. It's much more shaped by their sense of belonging, of community, of identity, that their values may not be the values of a rational thinker about an individual life. They may be the values of a religion or a culture that does not necessarily prioritize individualistic goals. And that criticism, that this is a bit Northeast United States, Harvard, waspish, a man thinking about, hmm, I've had my education now, what career do I want and how am I going to achieve it? It's too narrow. And of the criticisms, that's the one that Rawls took most seriously maybe because he felt it did strike home a bit. And he did increasingly moderate and modify his theory of justice, not its basic principles, but the means of reaching them to take account of a greater diversity of conceptions of the good life, religion, irrational ideas of the good life, that people might have values that aren't understandable in means-ends terms. And to say that that's okay too, that we need to bring all of that to bear on politics, we still need to find a way to get to these principles of justice, because they are the only ones that we could agree behind that veil of ignorance. But if we take account of the ways in which human life is not necessarily rational and rationalistic, we can introduce a different word, a different way of thinking about the process by which we arrive at our principles of justice. Not rational, but reasonable. If your views of life are irrational, if your goals don't fit a means-ends template, that's fine. But you can't insist on your worldview as the basis for justice. Your religion cannot be the basis for justice because you will not get agreement to that behind the veil of ignorance. So you have to accept that if you have a worldview like that, it still has to be consistent with the worldviews of people who don't agree with you. And so your worldview has, in political terms, to be reasonable. You leave out the things that cannot secure assent 
and only include the ones that can. And if you do that, you will still arrive at the principles of justice. And the principles of justice will be, Rawls says, using another somewhat bland word, consensual. The goal is a kind of consensus, a live and let live, modus vivendi, where different religions, different outlooks, different worldviews can coexist fairly and justly because the principles of justice still hold. And the argument is sometimes made that in going down that road, Rawls makes a bland philosophy even blander, an academic philosophy even more academic. And it does become, I have to say, a little bit more jargony as it evolves through a theory of justice into his later book called Political Liberalism. He really was a liberal. But is it that bland? So in America, Rawls's maxim in principle, which in the 1970s probably looked like it might be close to what, under a process of reflective equilibrium, most citizens would agree, was a definition of a just society, became decade after decade more and more remote. America has gone the other way. It's not maximin, it's maxi-max. American society has seemed to maximize the wealth, the life chances, the resources of the very, very wealthy, rising inequality, the growing wealth, not just of the 1%, but the 0.1%, not just an American phenomenon, but turbocharged in America, shows that Rawls's principle of justice, and this could either be a criticism of it or a commendation of it, has got more and more distant from the actual practice of American politics. It is a harder and harder sell, though people have tried to sell it, and the pendulum may be swinging back. But from the Reagan years to now, it has not felt like American society is a maximum society. It's not bland to argue that in the American context. It gets you called a socialist. But consensus, more recently, has become a remote ideal too. That word, reasonable, let's just be reasonable, as we move from the Obama era to the Trump era, from partisanship to hyper-partisanship, from the more extreme forms of mistrust to the more extreme forms of conspiracy theorizing, to have someone say the way we should organize our society is by being reasonable with each other, by seeking consensus, does not look like it's just going with the flow. It's a dangerous idea in 2021 America. So Rawls is not bland. Some of his critics have said he made himself blander than he needed to be. There is a small C conservatism, along with his small L liberalism, that the basic ideas of the principles of justice are incendiary, but they're incendiary because they have a kind of universal application. If this is really what we would agree as humans behind the veil of ignorance, then we ought to apply these principles of justice everywhere. So there is a feminist critique of Rawls, and it is a fair one, that Rawls assumes when he goes behind his veil of ignorance that he's talking about what he calls heads of households, men, and that family life is somehow exempt from this. You wouldn't want to apply the maximum principle, the principles of justice, questions about liberty and equality of opportunity inside the family. You don't want the state. You don't want rules and regulations and government institutions interfering with how men and women mothers and fathers and children relate to each other, to which the critics will say, why not? Given that families are often the places where the greatest injustices happen. If you really are thinking about the advantage of the least advantaged, the least advantaged are often women. This cannot be gender neutral. Or another criticism which says, what if you thought about this on a planetary scale or a global scale? 
why would you stop at the boundaries of the American state? The American state is fine by international standards. To be poor in America is to be poor. But my God, it's not to be poor compared to being poor in Africa. And if you want to know what fairness is, surely you have to ask what we would do behind the veil of ignorance if we didn't know whether we were going to be born in the United States of America or the Democratic Republic of Congo. And if we didn't know that, and we think that the principle holds, wouldn't we want to guard against the worst outcome? Wouldn't we think that our life chances would be greatly enhanced, whoever we were, if we could be sure that no one would fall below a certain threshold? And isn't that then an argument for massive redistribution on a global scale? And one might say, well, the institutions aren't there to do that. Who is going to tax the world? Who is going to take money from North America by force and hand it out in the places where people's life chances are blighted by the most extreme forms of poverty? But if you're serious about justice, you build the institutions that make it happen. If we don't have those institutions, but we believe in justice, we build them. Reflective equilibrium might tell us it's impossible. We can't have a world state. We can't have a global wealth tax. But the veil of ignorance might suggest that we're kidding ourselves if therefore we think we live in a just world. And there are lots of ways of extending Rawls's argument to argue that it does require new kinds of institution building. After all, if it is the case that these principles of justice are the ones that human beings, ignorant of their own circumstances, would adopt, and yet in North America, democratic politics, which supposedly gives a voice to all, has pushed politics in the opposite direction, towards greater inequality, towards greater accumulation of advantage with the people who already have all the advantages, then something is wrong with the institutions that translate people's voice into collective outcomes. What you might argue on the basis of Rawls's account, though Rawls doesn't argue this any more than he argues for global redistribution, any more than he argues for the state getting involved in the life of the family, you could argue that what you need is a new democracy, new institutions, not just new ways of counting votes, but new ways of giving a voice to the least advantaged. Rawls's focus, not exclusively, but primarily, is on material resources, because he thinks the other kinds of questions, voice and democratic freedom, have been taken care of by the other principles of justice. But what if they haven't? What if the reason that the poor in the United States never get a fair crack at the whip is because American democracy doesn't actually provide a voice for the poor because it is so dominated by power and money? Then the priority becomes not Swedish welfareism, the priority becomes tearing down that constitution and starting again. And then there's one last criticism of rules that is often made. This, I suppose, is the criticism that goes back to the accusation that he's somehow unrealistic about politics. Since he wrote A Theory of Justice, he has been perhaps the most influential philosopher in the English-speaking world theorising politics. Almost everyone references rules when they think about what it would be to organise a society better. They criticise him, they endorse him, they adjust him, they tweak him, they radicalise him, but they engage with him. But they are on the whole also academics. There is a whole industry of academic Rawlsian and post-Rawlsian political philosophy. So Rawls has been enormously influential in the ivory towers of the world, particularly of North America. He's also been very influential among lawyers. 
there is much more likelihood that Rawlsian arguments will be considered and will lead to actual political outcomes in the judgments of courts and judges. And Rawls is taught widely in law schools, and he's taught as one of the foundational theorists of what it is to live in a just society. And so there is a case, and it is usually framed as a criticism, that what's wrong with Rawls's political philosophy is it's not really a political philosophy. It's a kind of juridical philosophy. It's really for lawyers. Barack Obama studied rules, but the reason Barack Obama studied rules is Barack Obama went to Harvard Law School, where they teach rules. When Barack Obama was president of the United States, frankly, he didn't do much. He did some, he did some, but he didn't do much to uphold rules and principles of justice. Certainly, you couldn't say at the end of his eight years that Maximin had taken hold. And so the criticism is that a political philosophy that requires the time and the space of a law court, the reflection of a judge who steps back from the case, gets out his papers or her papers, looks through the precedents, the principles, rereads his or her well-thumbed copy of rules, and then comes to an enlightened judgment. That is a form of politics, but it's not real politics. It's not democratic politics. It is itself a bit elitist, a bit ivory tower, a bit detached. You can do a lot that way, and a lot of American politics particularly is shaped by what judges decide. But a politics that's reduced to what judges decide is still too remote. I don't know if there's anything to that criticism or not. There's a kind of parody version of it. This is not about judges, it's about politicians. When Rawls died at his funeral, it was noted that finally a president of the United States was taking notice of the argument of a theory of justice. But the president of the United States at that point was George W. Bush. I don't think he's read rules. The president who was paying attention to a theory of justice was President Bartlett from the West Wing, every liberal's fantasy president. Fantasy presidents do it. Harvard Law School educated judges do it. But democratic politicians caught up in the hurly-burly of democratic politics with no time to think, constantly fighting, 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 just trying to stay afloat, don't have time to think about it. And so the realist argument is that Rawls's moralistic conception of politics, too remote, too detached, requires too much distance. It requires time. It requires taking that step back. There isn't time to drop the veil of ignorance. There isn't time not to know who we are. If we don't know who we are, someone else will eat our lunch. And that's what democratic politics is. Well, maybe it is, but the counter-argument turns it on its head and says, not real politics doesn't give us the time to reflect. But if we never give ourselves the time to reflect, how can we ever know what politics could really be. There's more about rules and a theory of justice on the History of Ideas page at talkingpoliticspodcast.com and in the show notes that accompany this episode. Next week, David looks at one of Rules's liveliest critics, Robert Nozick, the man who tried to make libertarianism sexy. <laughs>